James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, has written to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the most practical book in the New Testament. And um, today he's talking to us about something we do all the time, which is plan for the future. And so uh, what does James tell us about how we should approach planning and decision-making um, and how, how we go about making life-altering choices? That's the question we have before us today. James 4, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, I say, do not slander one another. Do not, I think literally he says, do not speak badly or speak evil about another brother or sister. For anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, obviously you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to have such a fault-finding, critical spirit towards uh, your brother and sister in the church? Verse 13, now, now listen, you who say that today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and we will spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, Deo Valente is the Latin. Uh, Deo Deo Valente, we will live and do this or that. Uh, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You who say, I'm going to go to this college and get an electrical engineering degree and then move to Southern California and live on the beach and learn how to surf. Uh, You who say, I'm going to take $10,000 and invest it in this great stock that I've been watching. And once it hits $40 a share, I'm going to sell it. And I'm going to make a killing on on this, uh, this sale. He really could have been writing this passage directly about us today, couldn't he? Goals, schedules, life plans, five-year plans. I want to get married and have uh, three kids and, and have a Labrador retriever. I mean, these are things that we do all the time. I mean, we naturally, we make plans all the time. Do you think that the Bible is against planning? Well, Of course not. But I just want you to see the language that he uses here. Because if you read it, if you take it at face value, it certainly seems like he's really against our planning. Notice it says, today or tomorrow. Today or tomorrow. Well, that's a schedule, isn't it? Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. That's a destination. That's a place. And we will spend a year there. That's a time frame. And we'll, we will carry on business and make money, make profit. That's a goal. <clears throat> so we've got a schedule, a destination, a time frame, and a goal. At first glance, 
James seems to be against all of that. But as you dig a little deeper, we discover what James really is opposed to. And he is opposed to this. He's opposed to us being overconfident in our estimation of the future. See, the reason that these, this goal-setting, planning, destination, scheduling, and time frame managing is wrong, verse 14, it, he says, here's the reason why it's wrong. Uh, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And he's actually being generous there. You don't even know what will happen later today. Our culture loves this prediction-making. Sports talk radio is 10% news, 20% gossip, 80% forecasting of who's going to win, lose, and be traded and be cut. Um, politics, it's all about forecasting. Polling data and voter forecasts. Uh, our fears are mostly about forecasting. You are anxious because you think that you know what's going to happen tomorrow, or at least your anxieties are predicated upon uh, what you think is in your future. You, know no, you, know, you think you know enough about your future to be scared about it. <laughs> One author puts it this way. It says, you and I are eaten up with worry to the degree that we say, I know. I know what tomorrow is going to bring. Or I know what, uh, to, what is good for tomorrow. Or I, I, I know what is right. I know what is going to happen. I know uh, how history has to go. I know that this has to happen in my life. You and I are eaten up with worry to the degree that we say, I know. James says you don't know. Those of you who are a little older, I want you to think back to you at the age of 21, Remember you at 21? What was it that you wanted out of life? Or another way to put it, what was it that you wanted out of tomorrow at the age of 21? Aren't you glad that God didn't give you that tomorrow? Isn't that liberating good news that God doesn't actually give us what we know that we need for tomorrow? So you're a little bit wiser now. You're, you're 31 are, are, are you ready to forecast your tomorrow? Do you, are, are you still so sure that, that now you know better? Or even if you're 51, do you think that you're ready to take the reins of your life because you know what your tomorrow must be? No, you don't know what tomorrow holds, and you don't know which tomorrow is even better. That's what James is saying. Here's what you do know, verse 14, the second half of verse 14. Um, he says, what is your life? Here's what you know. You know that you are a mist that appears for just a little while and then vanishes. Shelton thanked the guys who came out for the workday yesterday morning. It was very cold yesterday morning, 29 degrees. And when we, everything was covered in frost, the parking lot was slick as ice. Whenever you walk outside on a very cold morning and you breathe, it's just that little puff of smoke that comes out of your mouth. And then it vanishes. It vanishes almost instantly. You know, there's nothing more fleeting than the puff of mist. And, and then it's gone. I was listening to, to a sermon this past week where the pastor reminded his congregation something I've told you before. That, that absolutely everything you do in this life, absolutely everything you do in this life will be forgotten in Two generations' time, 
Maximum three. The only thing that will be remembered about you in three generations is a little name on a tombstone. Everything will be forgotten. You don't know, what, what, you don't know any of the details of your great-great-grandfather or grandmother's life. No, nobody will, will remember anything about you. Quote, you might be a genocidal maniac. You might be the greatest humanita- humanitarian of your generation. But in the end, nothing you do will be remembered or make any lasting difference. And nobody will even be around to acknowledge what you do because you are a, me- a mist, James says. And you're, you're out of touch with reality unless you recognize your life is like that and everything in your life is like that except if the resurrection is true. Uh, of course, if the resurrection is true and you're resurrected like Jesus, then there is a life beyond the grave and all of your humanitarian efforts are legitimized. But otherwise, I mean, why do you spend your effort on other people when all you are doing is extending the breath, the mist, for a fraction of a second longer, and then it, it, it evaporates and is gone. Thanks be to the God that the resurrection is true, and it legitimizes all of our, our work um, you know, on this planet. And so here's a question to ask yourself. In light of the gospel and in light of the truth of the resurrection and in light of the brevity of our lives, um, what should I be spending more of my time doing? And then what should I be spending less of my time doing? Because um, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we are able to reprioritize today. What should I spend more time doing and less time doing? What do I need to make a bigger deal of? And what do I need to make a lesser deal of? What would God have me invest more of my passion and energy, time, and money Um, And then finally, the question you might want to ask yourself is, what have I been avoiding and procrastinating that really matters to God? I like to answer those questions on Sundays and Mondays. (laughs) I like to go back to the drawing board, and um, I suggest you do too. So to begin then, James is opposed to our being overconfident in what tomorrow holds. Sometimes our overconfidence manifests itself, as I just said, in anxieties. But other times it manifests itself, according to verse 13, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and make a profit. See, if you read verse 13 in the right tone of voice, you recognize it's not so much a plan that this tradesman or merchant has made. It's actually a boast. <laughs> He's so overconfident. Uh, it, it, it's a boast. And obviously, I wrote the liturgy this week to kind of focus on this theme of boasting. Um, I was surprised to discover that the word boast shows up 80 times in the Bible. Boasting is very important, very important in the ancient world. For instance, We've all watched a movie where a king is assembled in front of his army out on the field of battle. He's sitting upon his uh, horseback. He looks out at his, at his army and he, he says, Tonight we will feast within the, the gates of that city. And then everybody clamps their shields together, their swords together. Arr! 
The boast of warfare. You know, how do you get a bunch of men excited knowing that a third of them or even half of them are going to die in a few hours? You boast. You boast about the future. Well, when it comes to our boastfulness, we, uh, we're never so brazen as to stand up and say and, and pound our chest and say, look what I have done. But some of us are, are big-time planners. By nature, we've got a plan written down, scoped out, and we, if we're being honest, take a great deal of pride in our planning. And I think that's what James is after here. I like what the J.B. Phillips translation of verse 15 reads. It says that you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. You boast in your planning. You know, some of us boast in just the opposite. (laughs) We're proud of the fact that we don't plan. We just go with the flow. We see how life shakes out. And our our failure to plan is uh, its own form of boastfulness. But see, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, Your overconfidence in the future can manifest itself on the other end of the spectrum in in anxieties. It it can also manifest itself in the way that you approach your planning. One of my favorite pastors, Ray Cortez out of Florida, he has a trick question. He asks couples in uh, their first session of premarital counseling. Very first session, he asks them the question, how many kids do you want? How many kids do you want? Inevitably, uh, maybe the, the wife says, I want five kids. And the husband says, I want one kid, and maybe they start fighting uh, one with the other, but usually in the first count, uh, premarital counseling sessions, they're on their best behavior, I found, and no, nobody fights in session number one. Uh, so normally they'll say something along the lines of, we both agree that we want two kids, or we want 2.5 kids, uh, but we're going to wait five years until we have our 2.5 kids. And so she says this, he says this, and Cortez asks, well, what does God say? <laughs> How many kids does God say you want? For the sin that gets denounced more than any in the Old Testament is the sin of forgetting God. It's simply going about your life, making a plan, making a schedule, figuring out how many kids you want, figuring out where you're going to do your career, and practically forgetting about God. It's the whole problem of practical atheism where we think about God for 10 minutes, uh, or we think about God only on Sundays. But, but what does God say? Where is God in your plans? Since we are talking about boasting in the sermon, um, a little bit of a rabbit trail here. You know that in Paul's writings, he will often boast about his accomplishments in life. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians, his boast, 1 Corinthians, is it... Uh, 14, he says, it might not be 14, but he says, I I boast that I speak in tongues more than anyone else. I talk in more language than all the rest of you. Elsewhere, Paul boasts that I work harder than all of those so-called super apostles. Then later on, he says, I work harder than all my contemporaries as an evangelist and church planner. Then he boasts in 2 Corinthians, we already read it, I've been more abused, more neglected, more mistreated, more persecuted than all the rest of them combined. And when you hear those statements of the Apostle Paul, this boasting, you think that doesn't sound like a very humble guy, does it? It sounds a bit arrogant. But, 
But actually what Paul says, he doesn't say, I speak in tongues more than any of you. He actually says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any, anybody else. I thank God that I have suffered so much for the sake of the gospel. I am grateful that I have labored harder than anybody else, but not, not I, but the grace of God at work inside of me. You know, many times what we do is when we have achieved something of note, we will, under the guise of humility, try to minimize that accomplishment. Uh, oh, it was nothing. Oh, it's not a big deal. What it, but that was not Paul's formula. Paul said, I thank God that I was able to do such and such, and I boast in God that he accomplished such and such within me. So it's not a humble brag. It's the spirit of of deep and genuine gratitude. I boast in God's, in in the Holy Spirit's work inside of me. And most of all, as we got in the Isaac Watts hymn earlier, we, we boast in the cross through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We boast, may I never boast except uh, in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, let's move on. So James says there should be a fundamental difference between how we normally make our schedules and our five-year plans and how God wants us to make our five-year schedules and plans. I mean, for even how we make next week's plans. Verse 15, he says... Here's how you do it. Instead of saying, I will go and do such and such and this and that, he says, say, if the Lord wills. Deo valente. Lord willing. Deo valente. Now, some of us, uh, have, were you ever in a Christian community that did this? They, they kind of make this into a rule of speech where you're not allowed to talk about any events in the future without always adding the appropriate caveat, Lord willing. You know, I got myself into that habit early on in my Christian life. And even today, I have a difficult time talking about tomorrow without tacking on that little phrase at the end of the sentence, Lord willing. But no, no, this is not a, a rule of speech that Paul is, or that James is trying to get us into. This is a, a, a habit of heart. It is as you will, Lord. My life, Deo Valente, as you will. I know you know this, uh, this is true, but it's good to be reminded of the fact that God, your God, our God, is all-knowing and all-powerful and is planned out and will work out every detail of all of our lives for all of our good. Everything that happens is according to his plan. Um, and God works good for all those who love him and are called according to his purposes. At the same time, the Bible says uh, our choices matter. Everything that happens, happens according to his plan. And, not either or, but and, our choices do matter. Nobody's forcing you into the choices that you make. They're consequential. They're made by you and you're responsible for them. Uh, we, we know that our, con- our choices matter. And that's why we, we we're so concerned about making the right choices. Answering who I should marry, answering that rightly. Or who, what should my career be? Or should I move to this or that city? So how do we go about making those choices? When we are presented with several options that are legal, moral, and allowable, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? I have two answers to that question. First of all, God's will for your life is is actually pretty simple. God's will for your life 
is Christ-likeness. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, God's will for your life is for your sanctification, for you to be more Christ-like. Truly, nothing is more important than you becoming a person who more fully reflects the image of his son. And so anytime you enter into this decision-making process, you need to recognize that first and foremost, what God wants is, is simply for you to be holy and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and to be like Christ. Nothing will help our world more than to have more Christians on it that look more like Jesus. So that's what he's after. That's God's will. Still, we ask the question, well, how do I make choices? And the second answer I would give to that is Proverbs. You can write this one down. Proverbs 16, verse 3. It reads this, this way. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Commit to the Lord whatever you do. And the implication of Proverbs 16.3 is that he will make your paths or your plans succeed. But there's a funny little word in Hebrew there for the word commit. It, you know, Hebrew always has these different idioms. And in this case, the idiom, it, it literally means to roll over with all of your weight onto something. So to commit to the Lord literally, woodenly, means to roll over on, onto him with all of your weight. So what job should I take? Where should I live? Those are the questions we want answered, and we want to know his specific plan for the who, what, where, when, and how of our lives. And he says, well, just roll your weight over onto me. You see, so many people think of God's will for their life as, as like this labyrinthine corn maze they have to navigate. Uh, other people think of it in terms of a tightrope that you walk and have to balance on. And other people still think of it like a bullseye that you have to hit. And everything outside of the bullseye uh, is second best. But, but Proverbs suggests God's will for your life is more or less like a walking stick or a chair or a bed will you roll all of your weight over onto me god's will for our lives is that we would put our whole weight on his son jesus christ Um, at the end of the day the very best life lived is the one with christ at the center of that life i mean christ is meant to be uh, the full weight-bearing center of your heart and of your life. Did you? Of course you knew that. Um, are you living that? Colossians chapter 3, it says that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's talking about the return of Christ and the eventual resurrection of the dead. But that for a little phrase, when Christ, who is your life, Christ is your life. And so if you make Christ your life, you make him your chief desire, then, I mean, your decisions are okay. They're going to be okay. He'll give you the wisdom to make them. You don't have to make them perfectly right. It'll be okay if Christ is at the center and you, weigh, you, you roll your weight over onto him. All right, a few concluding practical implications. I have two of them here. Uh, one is addre- addressed to the chronic worrier 
And the other is addressed to the person who's chronically indecisive. If you're a chronic worrier about your future and about your plans for the future, the reason that we worry is we doubt that we have a heavenly father who knows what we need tomorrow. Uh, We really doubt that our father is on the throne. And so for you, if you're a chronic worrier, God's will for your life, according to Matthew 6, 26, is that you would look at the birds of the air. For they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds the birds. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life, look at the birds of the air, And then look at your father who is on his throne and realize that everything's going to be okay in the end. The new heavens and the new earth are coming and everything sad is going to become untrue. Thank you, Tolkien. Uh, And so you roll your weight over on your father and over on his son. And then secondly, if you're chronically indecisive, um, and I I found that this is true of me as a pastor. So... In my, when I wear my father hat and the husband hat, when I'm in my own home, I'm pretty decisive. Uh, um, but when I wear my pastor hat, I am so chronically indecisive. I'm uh, afraid to commit to a plan because it's a plan that involves 350 other people. <laughs> and... Uh, It's frightening to figure out what to do um, and all of the things that can go wrong. But I take a great deal of comfort. I've tried to take a great deal of comfort from, again, from the life of Paul. Where Proverbs 34 verse 7 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think that's normally how it works. When we delight in Christ, he does give us the, the outworking fruit of, of that. And he'll give us the desires of our heart. But sometimes he gives us something even better. I've used this example before. What was the desire of Paul's heart in the last, we'll call it, five years of his life? The very practical desire of Paul's heart and the plan that he made in the last, maybe it was three years of his life. Whatever the time frame is, what was it? The desire of his heart was to go to Spain. I would love to go to Spain. I suspect you would too. Well, Paul wanted to go to Spain because he wanted to be the the first pioneering missionary who ever made it to Spain. That was the desire of his heart. And so he knows, like any good missionary, that you got to raise support and you got to have logistical help. If you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world, you're going to need a little help to get there. So he writes kind of a missionary support letter to a church, all because he was dreaming of Spain. Now, did he ever make it to Spain? No, he didn't. But because he dreamt of Spain, and that was the desire of his heart, what did he get? What did we get? We got the book of Romans. <laughs> we got Romans 8 from what we uh, you know, read from earlier today. Similarly, uh, one of the things Paul was so concerned about at the end of his life was making sure that there would be peace between the Jewish church back in Jerusalem and all these Gentile churches that he was forming out in the, uh, the Mediterranean world. So the way that he was going to do that, his plan was he would take up a, a famine relief offering for the poor, 
poor people back in Jerusalem, take it from all of his Gentile churches, and they would send this mighty famine relief gift back to Jerusalem, and, and that would help ingratiate the Gentile churches with the, the Jewish churches back there. So he travels back to Jerusalem um, after having spent an entire year and a half of his life gathering up this offering. And what happens nearly as soon as he lands on shore? He gets thrown in prison. <laughs> he gets thrown in prison. And that wasn't part of his plan, was it? His plan was to make peace between the two churches. But he's in prison for two years which meant he had a lot of time on his hands to write. And what do we get as a result of all of that? Well, we get Paul's uh, prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all of which were penned during that time of his house arrest. And friends, I think this is how ministry works. It's often how life works too. God allows us to dream and plan for the future Not necessarily so that we will fulfill all of those plans, but so that he will fulfill some of his plans, which are even better than our plans. And that's the comfort that I take as a pastor, is the route may be very circuitous, but a man in his heart plans his ways, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. And I hope you'll take comfort in that, even as you go about your life. Now listen, you who say that today or tomorrow we will do such and such, you don't even know where you will be a year from today. You don't know where you'll be a year from now. But don't let that scare you. If Christ is alive, if Christ is your life, ask yourself, Lord, what, what should I be spending more of my time doing? And less of my time doing. Write that in your journal today. What do I need to be making a bigger deal of and a lesser deal of? What plans do you want me to commit to? Deo Valente, Lord Jesus, Deo Valente, as you will. Amen.